LinkedIn presents. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Josh Brown is our guest today. He's CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management and the host of the Compound and Friends Podcast. And Josh is one of my favorite financial analysts. He is smart and funny, honest and incisive. He could speak about the market broadly and go into depth on individual companies. And he's the perfect guest for us this week here to dig into why tech companies are still reeling from a tighter financial market, even as their share prices return, if not to normal, then to something approximating it after a bloodbath in 2022. Speaking with Josh is almost like speaking with the market itself. In his words, you can hear what Wall Street demands from the tech industry and its employees and hear where it might be headed next. And I think you're going to really enjoy hearing his perspective. My conversation with Josh Brown coming up right after this. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the show. Alex, so great to be back. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Great to have you back. I think um, you're going to have to help me figure out why I'm feeling so nauseous from the whiplash with all these big tech companies, because I thought they had like gone through a decline and then into a correction, and then now they're on their way back up. So let me just read some numbers before we, we jump in. Meta was at 378, went down to 90, so 76% decline. Now it's back up to 212. This has been like from the, the peaks in November 21 down to the trough in 22, and now it's coming up in 23 again. So down 76%, up 135. Netflix similar, right? Down from 680 to uh, 180, and then up to 322. So almost doubled from its depths. Amazon 183 to 84, and then back up to 107. I mean, every single one of these stock charts look like a roller coaster. Why can't the market make up its mind when it comes to the way to value tech companies? Well, I think one of the enduring features of being an investor in tech stocks is that you tend to have much greater than typical volatility with respect to, let's say, the XLK sector ETF versus uh, the MSCI world. Just like as an example, uh, you're up 19% in, in the tech sector this year. and you know, year to date, the world stock index, while it's rallied, is really only up nine percent, which is not bad. But um, you you see just a more pronounced because um, it's not just volatility in the stock prices, but it's volatility in sentiment, it's volatility in the earnings outlook, um, and what you get for that higher beta, what you get for that higher risk, is you get companies that have higher than normal profit margins. You get like obscenely profitable companies and you get companies that scale faster than any other type of company, any other type of business. So that's kind of like the, the, the trade-off. You have, on the one hand, you have, you have stocks that could be a trillion dollars plus in market cap and dominate the entire world and be 25 years old in the case of Apple, 40 years old and still have 40, 50% profit margins. That's the good part. The bad part that comes along with that is People's emotions um, are so charged uh, when it comes to these stories that stock prices can move much greater than 
the actual fundamentals are changing underneath. Yeah. And so you look at it from like a market perspective. And I often look at this coming from like the tech company perspective. And it makes sense from a market perspective. In a company, it can feel completely turbulent, right? You're on top of the world one day. Yeah. The next day, the market hates you. And it can be difficult to actually like plan a business that way. So just from your perspective, like looking at it from, from where you are, do you do you think that this volatility within tech companies, like the inside of the tech companies, just is just something that people that are working there just need to be prepared for? And if you're running them, how do you make long-term planning decisions if you can end up in this cycle where one day you're on top and the next day you're on the bottom? Well, I think we go through eras. And if you look at um, the tech giants from 2016 through 2021, that five-year period, what you could call a renaissance for large cap tech. Volatility was actually very low. If you if you pull out the pandemic month of March 2020, and you look at the volatility of the the five largest tech giants, and I know some of them are classified as communications, but just bear with me. Like if you look at that, you will see that um, they had this really um, placid period where the stocks went up and up. They became a larger share of the S and P 500, and they didn't really experience much volatility. Like Facebook remained dominant in all its businesses, no questions asked. Nobody thought that Google was at any kind of risk. Um, Apple was a, a, a one-way street. Uh, Microsoft. So, like that, those periods can't last forever. They come to an end. The big question was always like, if we let these tech giants become so dominant, it'll be like almost like a self-reinforcing thing where nobody will ever be able to challenge them. And like the the risk to the economy is having these monopolies that are unchecked. Well, it turns out we didn't need an external challenge because now they're all at war with each other. And maybe that's the way that they shrink in dominance ultimately is just from chipping off pieces of one another. So that's the period that we're in now. I would say the, the uh, tech stock crash of 2022 um, put that in, put that in really late 2021 uh, and 22. Put that in motion, and now we see these companies basically re- the the leadership resigning from each other's boards, and they are going at it. And it's a different era, and volatility is now higher. And some areas where these businesses were considered untouchable or invincible uh, are now being called into question. And I think the best illustration of that. In, in the recent few months is is Microsoft versus Google on search, for example. But there are, there are many others. Apple changing its uh, iOS um, to, to put Facebook in the hole. Like there's, there's just a lot more of that kind of like, uh, I guess what you'd call nation state fighting happening between these, these tech giants. And that's where you get the volatility in stock price. Absolutely. And I just want to tease for the second half, we're going to go through some of these battles and really get into the way that these companies are are battling with each other. But continuing on just in terms of the bigger picture, I wonder if the bloodletting that has happened in Silicon Valley is enough for the market. And I'll tell you why it's sort of confusing here. So obviously, interest rates go up, way that you do business previously, it's not going to really work the same way. So you end up having these companies for the first time sometime in their history, or at least the greatest magnitude in their history, doing very big layoffs. Look at like 10,000 people out at Meta, um, you know, basically in a, in a moment. And my perspective of this was always, okay, you're going to do it once, you do it right, 
and you don't have to do it again. And even as their stock has gone up, right? Like I said, Meta's up, you know, double from from the depths. Last week, they just did another big layoff of, or started a big layoff of another 10,000, somewhere in in that neighborhood. So one of the questions I have is, when is the bloodletting inside these companies going to be enough, if ever? And, you know, shouldn't they just kind of be done now that their stocks are on the way up again? Well, let me let me ask let me ask you a question back to answer that. If you are Mark Zuckerberg and you laid off seven percent of your workforce and your stock price went up seventy percent, wouldn't you do it again? In other words, well, it's costing the it's costing you nothing in revenue. Mm-hmm. It's boosting your your profits. And it's putting your share price back up where it was. Wouldn't you want to keep going? That's one. Second. Wait, let me let me answer that one okay. though. Like I think that like you you can continue to cut, but un- you you eventually run the risk of of handicapping your organization. Like this second layoff sure. is all engineers, or not all, but it includes engineers. Where before it was like recruiting. Okay, you can cut recruiting if you're not hiring anymore. But if you start cutting core competency, that's another thing. Though maybe the response is that they're actually cutting middle management. And they think that without the middle management, they'll be able to operate better. But, you know, it is interesting. I never really thought about the fact that they're just like, okay, well, Wall Street really liked that. Let's do it again and see what happens. Yeah. So now Zuckerberg is not having letters written to him by Brad Gerstner and other uh, large investors um, complaining and, and, you know, making requests and demands. Now he's got upgrades for his stock from the sell side. He's probably in back channels behind the scenes. He's got large investors saying, great job. And I want to phrase this to you a little bit differently, um, just because we should not think of these companies in the same way in which you would think of like a classic conglomerate um, from the 1970s or 80s that overhired or like a manufacturing business or something like that, where it's just pure dollars and cents. Like, you know, revenue is down. We got to cut. We got to cut costs to preserve our profit margins. That is not necessarily the whole story here. Um, Zuckerberg, after the first round of layoffs, talked about how employees were thanking him. It turns out that there was cultural rot coming as a result of the overhiring. There were engineers working at the at the company that were saying, "Why aren't we shipping? Why is there so much bureaucracy? Why why are there so many layers of of?" management or redundancies in engineering like what we need to get back to actually making and shipping uh product which in their case is is software is service so i think that the the entire mentality of we have to hire all these engineers to make sure the the tech giant down the street can't that entire mentality is now gone and it's been replaced with who are the people within this firm that are holding us back and that are introducing that cultural rot and how quickly can we get rid of them so that the people who are remaining afterward, A, get the message that this is a company that is now focused on execution and not empire building, and uh, B, uh, aren't a drag on the potential earnings so that I don't have to read any more uh, Dear Mark letters from activist you know, shareholders and hedge funds, et cetera. So it's it's a combination of things. It's not purely about um, profitability. I think it's about like what is the heart and soul of this business? Are we here to you know play games with each other and have casual Fridays and have luau's, or are we here to deliver something? And I think yeah. obviously the they've gotten religion and it's the latter. 
I'm sure you saw the Wall Street Journal article about the employees inside companies like Meta who were just sitting around and doing nothing. Recruiters who had to wait a year before they could recruit because they were superfluous there. And maybe you're right. They were just trying to gobble up talent so the others couldn't. Yeah. And you understand that impulse. You understand that impulse. You've got like a million startups vying for talent. You've got, you know, 25 publicly traded gigantic companies vying for talent. And again, that placid period from 16 to 21, um, you know, that, that a, sh- a shortage of, of talent was emblematic of that era. And now it's gone in reverse, as these things often do. So you can understand why they're not done. Definitely. So let me ask you this. So the, the market is obviously driving this. I mean, it's obviously cultural in some ways, right? You want to be able to build again. Things are more competitive. But without these you know, the increase in interest rates, you probably wouldn't get here. So the market is driving these layoffs. Do you think from a market standpoint, a company like Facebook, a company like Amazon is finished here? Like if I'm an employee in one of these companies, I'm sitting there. Should I be like, okay, like we've gone through these two rounds. I could take a deep breath. I'm probably going to get to keep no. my job or is, okay. No, if you're an employee there, you should, you should stop focusing on that. Look at your screen and, and, and do your fucking work because right. they, there's no penalty associated with these companies laying people off like wall street is cheering they want more and we, we were talking i was talking about this with uh, michael batnick the other day on one of our shows like the the wave of tech layoffs that we're talking about the numbers sound big and in meta's case percentage-wise they are big but like amazon firing ten thousand people they have 1.5 million workers it's really not that big a deal they could do that every year for the next 10 years and not even make a dent in just the hiring that they, they've done uh, post-COVID. So there's probably still a lot of that. No, look, nobody's rooting for layoffs, but I also think we could agree there are a lot of people that have been hired in the last five years that were probably unnecessary to begin with and maybe aren't there to actually work. Um, we, you know, We've read articles about people getting jobs in these companies so that they can walk around and be activists and and start agitating for social justice and and you know scheduling uh walkouts and and this kind of thing like there's just a there's still a lot there's still a lot of room for these businesses to refresh what they were doing and get back to basics and uh you know it's it's not saying that you say is good or it's bad it's just a business that's that's right. really what it is but are you telling me you didn't love the day in the life TikToks? I I enjoyed them very much, but that was the <laughs> top. Like that was emblematic yep. of the nonsense. Listen, I visited I visited Google's uh, campus in in Venice Beach, and it was amazing. And they had like just the facilities. It, it was like in a movie, and like the dining hall alone was just I, I couldn't. It was like Versailles, and and. You know, that's probably 2017. So it had a few more years to run. But I remember looking at the people I was with and saying, how on earth is this possible? Can you have a company this comfortable, you know, with, with where it is business-wise that it's willing to spend this way? And so well, a, lot was, of that, yeah. a lot of that stuff is long overdue. Yeah. One of those stories I, when I was in Facebook's Menlo Park campus, um, now look, I, I, I'm not, I still can't believe I saw what I saw, but I mean- they had laundry there that they would do for employees that I know is for real. And I'm pretty sure they had like an on-site auto mechanic. 
that if your car was having trouble, they would. Yeah, and these things are cool. these things are great. These things are great when when uh, you're hitting your targets and and you know the stock price is making all time highs and you have a market cap that's a trillion dollars. These things are great, but it's just it's not permanent. Like the you right at a certain point, there's competition, there are threats, there's regulation, there are all these things that you know you have to refocus on to survive. No, everybody. Everybody has to stay a little bit paranoid. Yeah, it, take, it takes your eye off. Uh, I, I don't know about paranoia, but it definitely takes your eye off the ball. And, you know, when I, I wrote this book about tech company culture, always day one, and it was, it was, it focused zero on the perks, zero. Because yeah. the cool thing about being at these companies is that you can build a product and the next day it's in the hands of a billion people or more. Yeah. It's not about getting your car fixed in the, in the lot. Right. And I, I, it did seem like a distraction, so. But but let's talk a little bit about the the broader economy right now, because you know it's almost it almost seems like tech has gone through its recession and now the rest of the economy is about to go through its own. Is that the right way of looking at it? Is it like tech just got it out of the way earlier? I don't think so, but i I think I think tech and just tech in general um, was the first to feel the impact of higher rates because of the stock prices and. So when you're like, who, who did these layoffs? The stock market fired these workers because these these stocks went down 50 to 80% in value, which is incredible in a very compressed period of time. And that was uh, the investor class telling these companies, we don't believe that you're prepared for the economic slowdown that the Federal Reserve is trying to produce. Um, so I think the effect was felt first in tech, but but now the rest of the economy is clearly decelerating. It's not a catastrophe. It's just a, a fact. Um, all of the stimulus is going in reverse. And, you know, this is just what happens when the Fed is removing liquidity. So it's it's not a crash. It's not a, a recession or a depression, but it's a deceleration. And so to answer your question, it's hard for me to picture all, all of the slowdowns happening economy-wide and on a globally coordinated basis and saying, like, we we've, we've seen the worst that we'll see from technology spending, technology earnings, like you, you, I think you're gonna have a tough year in, let's say, enterprise software. You're gonna have a tough time closing business. You're gonna have a tough time convincing companies to expand the amount of seats they're paying for. You're gonna have a tough time laying on new services and and uh, penetrating deeper into, you know, Fortune 500 companies' tech stacks and getting bigger commits. It's just it's harder, and that's what you're hearing from the CEOs now. I listened to the CEO of CrowdStrike, uh, George Kurtz, and he's selling enterprise software, security software, and companies can't afford to not spend money on that. So what he's saying is, oh, we're doing the amount of deals we thought we would do, but they're taking longer to close. And you know, if, if we thought something was Q1 business, it might be Q2 business. We still think we get the business, but it's not automatic. And I think that that's what you're going to hear and see for the remainder of this year, because you just listen to the commentary from corporate executives outside of tech, and they are not guns blazing. So, like a lot of this is intuitive. You just you listen to conference calls, you get the vibe, you get the flavor of what they're saying, and then you listen to the the responses to the analyst questions, and it's palpable. Everybody is chilling out and doing way less than they were doing a year or two ago. Yeah, you recommended the quarter app to me last time you were on, and. Now it's a staple for me. It's a great little app. You How can great is that? Get it. It's amazing. Fast forward to the Q and A and just listen. 
put it on 1.2, 1.5 speed. Yeah. It's a great way to blow through all these earnings. So one of the things, speaking of earnings season, like one of the things people are talking about is that that earnings are going to be down this quarter. I'm curious, like what you what you think that means? Is it just that companies are making less money now than they were? Or they're less profitable? Or maybe I'm hearing it completely wrong. Well, when you say down, the thing to keep in mind is that there's no absolute number. Everything is a comp. So think about, so, so if you think about it in terms of a, a, a comparison, it's a comparison over this time last year. So the comps are still hard because the economy was still on fire last year, coming out of 21 into 22. Um, consumers were still spending at, at peak levels for, for everything from PCs to gaming consoles to, you know, to non-tech things. That's obviously not the case anymore. If you know you bought something from Hewlett Packard, so your kid could, uh, you know, go to college with it or whatever. Like if you, if you bought equipment, you probably don't have to do that a year later, also, right? So like that that phenomenon of the services side of the economy outperforming the durable goods side, I think, will be with us for at least the rest of this year. And again, it's because of comps. So that's one very big factor. We haven't really heard from any tech companies yet. Um, mm-hmm. Those earnings will come in in, in the coming week. And uh, I think you're going to hear muted demand. But again, one thing to keep in mind about Wall Street, there's no such thing as good news or bad news. There is only better or worse than expected. Remember I said, everything's a comp. This is a really important concept. So oftentimes you'll see a company report what you think is, quote, bad news, and the stock will rise. Oftentimes you'll see a company come out with blockbuster earnings and the stock will sell off. Why? Because all that matters, good and bad in absolute terms, don't mean anything. The only thing that matters is, did, did Wall Street expect more or less? So that's, the, that's where we are now. I think there's a lot of glasses half uh, empty mentality about the coming earnings season. We're supposed to be down about 7% on the S&P, uh, like the S&P 500 earnings total over this quarter last year. Also, not catastrophic, coming off a very high level. And it might be slightly better or slightly worse than that. But, you know, I think that's that's kind of where Wall Street is expecting to see things shake out. And, you know, you talk about what you expect. Right. And I think one of the big issues here has been what do we expect from the Fed? Right. It's like, when are they going to stop raising rates? When are we going to get some certainty? Because eventually we have to have some sort of pause before people can predict what's going to happen and then plan. Yeah. Well, nobody, nobody, nobody knows. Is, is the short answer. Right. The longer answer is, if you if you listen to what the Fed is saying about the last rate hike, um, the one that they carried out during the banking crisis, they said it was a, an eleventh hour decision. Hmm. So they did a quarter of a they they did a quarter of a point rate hike in the last uh, meeting, but like they really decided that that day or the day before. So the idea that anybody knows what the Fed is going to do, I mean, they don't even know what they're going to do. So how do you know? So right. there's, a, there's, you know, there's always a debate, what should they do? Um, I'm in the camp that says they've probably done enough. And a lot of the indicators that they think are too high or haven't come down enough or whatever are really severely lagging indicators. And they should give it some time for the cumulative impact of everything they've done so far to catch up. There are some people who are in the camp that say, nope. Um, slam on the brakes until we really like we really have confirmation that things are falling fast. And uh, you know, I, I think that's a mistake. But 
maybe that's the way they end up going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were pretty strong. I mean, in you know, in the camp, but you were also just like very adamant that Powell needs to pause. I think so. I look, it, the market is pricing in weight cuts already. Mm-hmm. So, okay. the, so when you when you look at futures prices and you look at what the market is pricing in. Uh, in rates for for the second half of this year for next year, the market is saying they've already gone too far, and you don't even need to know like where to look and 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 read you know surveys. All you have to do is look at bond prices themselves. Um, the Fed tends to follow what the two year does, and the two year is not with the Fed, uh, you know, going significantly higher than where it is right now. Uh, the ten year fell off, so like I. I think the market is already saying some of these last rate hikes are going to have to be given back because it was already too much. So, you know, it's, it's more than just like my feelings on the subject. This is the consensus, uh, is that it's already overdone. Josh Brown is here with us. He's the CEO of Riddle's Wealth Management, the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Compound and Friends. I listen to it every single week. Really fun. Uh, ending the last week's episode about ice in Europe. I recommend you go check it out. (laughs) Josh gave us the report. Europe, you need more ice. So there's also some great financial analysis uh, right before that. So uh, before we go to break, I just want to say if you're enjoying the show, a rating and review goes a really long way. A rating on Spotify, a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you can do that, that will help us get great guests like Josh to come back again and again and show folks. I'll always that, come back, hey, Alex. I don't even I appreciate read your ratings. It. Man, you, uh, I'll just come. Okay. Well, thank you. Well, and in, w- in which case, if you need a great way to let you off the hook, then just remember Josh will be back. <laughs> but, uh, but hey, if you've got your app open and, and you're willing to hit that five-star rating, that would go a long way and, and we'd appreciate it. All right. We'll be back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Josh Brown, CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management, co-host of The Compound and Friends with Michael Batnick. Where else can people find your stuff, Josh? Well, I used to write a lot more than I do now, but the blog is thereformedbroker.com. And maybe I'll get back to writing at some point, but like, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of focused on uh, building the business and I can only do so much media. And I think I've just kind of defaulted to doing a lot more um, television and, and podcasts and, and such. Um, but you know, things, things could change, but that's the primary way to, to catch my stuff these days is audio and video. Yeah. And, uh, like I said, before the break compound and friends staple for me, I'm in the gym 
I'm cooking, I'm walking somewhere, I'm listening to Compound and Friends, I'm in the car, oh, we love I'm listening it. to Compound and Friends, I'm watching CNBC, there's a great chance that Josh is on also, and I always turn the volume on, so just, just putting it out there. Joining me for the hour today, right here at Post 9, Josh Brown, Stephanie Link, and Jim Labenthal. Let's check the markets. Uh, we've been in the red for months. <laughs> I'm on less than people think, uh, just a couple of times a week, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Awesome. So um, I thought for the second half, we could like, I teased that we would go through some of these battles. Let's definitely do that. I wrote like a little bit of a, I would call maybe provocative thesis um, about each one of the tech companies. Maybe I could just like read it to you and kind of get your, your take on it. So let's start with Facebook or Meta, if you prefer Meta. Um, I wrote uh, doing everything right in the market size, but pretty weak in its future business and vulnerable in its core. Do you think they'll change the name? Uh, back to Facebook. I keep saying they should just change it to AI at this point, like or meta AI. So that, I don't is, that know. What, is that what they're going to do? They're going to keep chasing the next buzzword and and keep changing the name. Well, I have I have this later on for you, but I I think that the the AI stuff, at least in the near term, is definitely more real in the metaverse. Um, but maybe maybe I mean metaverse isn't metaverse such like a zero interest rate name? Like <laughs> once you have a five percent interest it's, rate, it's awful. I hated yeah. it when they did it. And it made sense when they did it, and I still hated it. And now it just looks, now it just looks yeah. goofy. Yeah, I, do you, I don't know. Do you know what? Wait, do you know any Facebook people that say I work at Meta? No, uh, actually, I yeah, know they do. They they all have taken to it. Yeah, I mean, they call okay. themselves Meta Mates. That's oh, the really? Company name. What if they rebranded yeah. as Instagram? It's a good. It's an interesting idea. But do you want to rebrand as a company that is sort of second in the market next to TikTok? I don't know. I would rebrand from a position of strength. Yeah. So I don't, I, re- I really don't know what they should do, but uh, mm-hmm. the it might be one of the all time worst name changes in corporate history. I, yeah. would, have to th- I, think, I would have to think yeah. about that, but it's, it's pretty bad. There may be, who knows, maybe with like what's happening, the, the reputation that TikTok is getting and what's happening with Twitter, having some nostalgia for old social media, like you have to, I mean, I have to say that Mark Zuckerberg probably looks a lot better now than he did two years ago. And there might be some nostalgia for Facebook, even if not many people are using it in the same way that they did beforehand. Maybe go back to Facebook. It, be if TikTok gets banned in the United States, the no brainer is to rebrand as Instagram. Yeah. But do you think TikTok is going to get banned? No, no, I think it'll, yeah. I think it'll get subsidiaried, right. Uh, and handed over to American ownership and the Chinese will content themselves with a really, really big royalty revenue stream. And I think that's how it'll end up going. Yeah, I'm with you on that. If it gets there. I mean, maybe it just... The US government, when it comes to tech, has a habit of just letting things continue as they are. But this is a little different, but... Yeah. I don't know. if there, There's all this talk, but if this is a pressing threat, where's the action? And because there's no action yet, it just doesn't seem like what's going to be that compelling event. Maybe well, you know what? The American public is not clamoring for this to happen and that's the missing ingredient politicians do things to get reelected and so if if their own internal operations are taking polls and seeing what their constituents think and there's not a lot of energy behind you know there's not a lot of fervor to go after tiktok then they'll just stop and they'll go chase whatever the next issue is so i think you're right yeah there was an article in the washington post last week talking about how the democrats are worried that they're vulnerable because of their this potential crackdown on TikTok. Well, the other the other side is cracking down on, on Mickey Mouse, so maybe it's a push. <laughs> yeah, 
All right. Well, we'll we'll see. Also, like, I don't know. It just uh, well, it, this is it again gets to the government's role in the private sector. So, but when you you bring in national security, and that's it's one thing. But I, I've always felt that there needs to be an egregious foul on TikToks and for something like this to get done. Well, I so. guess I guess we'll we'll have to see then. Uh, right. Well, some kind of some kind of leak where we find out, you know, what they're actually doing with TikTok specifically. And if it if it pisses enough people off, maybe. But for right now, it doesn't feel like putting a lot of time and energy into banning TikTok is going to be a winning strategy for either party for any particular reason. Correct. And definitely not for Facebook either, at least in my opinion. So, yeah. Um, so let's talk about Apple. So okay. I, I wrote that Apple is somewhat vul- somewhat vulnerable um, with inflation. There was a 40% decline in laptop purchases. They're about to push a risky mixed reality device with without a clear roadmap. Who knows if people are going to upgrade iPhones in the same degree as they were beforehand. Now, the company has been pretty invulnerable, but maybe there's some vulnerability there. What do you think? Well, the stock is off its all-time high, but I think the important thing to remember is that uh, Apple is one of the greatest cash machines ever built. And the ability to buy back stock, pay a dividend, engage in R&D, enter new market, like they do it all. Uh, it's it, it's it's one of these companies that has just been able to walk and chew gum. And look, there have been there have been periods where they've looked very vulnerable, and they've figured it out, even just in the Tim Cook era. So, like until they really miss, until they really launch something that falls flat, uh, I think it would be a mistake to bet that that's what's going to happen. Um, it hasn't been a successful bet so far. So Apple has this. Speaking of like doing everything right from a financial standpoint, they have this new Apple. I think it's a savings account or Apple Card or something of that nature, where you you put your money with Apple and you get like four percent back. Do you, what do you, would you what would you tell your your clients about that? Yeah. I was going to say the odds of that even showing up on you know in terms of like moving the needle for Apple or zero. Right. So it's part of their services business. That's where that gets bundled into, and uh, the services business is just massive. And you know, I I don't think that's a big picture. I don't think that's terribly important. Uh, it is interesting, and it could open the door to more financial services. But uh, I think the the big picture is the installed user base and the overall growth in in services revenue, and mm. you know what they can then do with all that cash flowing in. And it's it doesn't feel like it's on the verge of changing. Um, probably the biggest risk there is TSMC and China, Taiwan, and some kind of uh, event that limits their ability to access the chips they need. Like, to, like if you ask me, like, what's Apple's Achilles heel? It's something geopolitical where they're asked to bow down to China in some way. They refuse. They're kicked out of the country from selling iPhones there. Or some kind of disruption to chip supply because of China Taiwan like that. And by the way, that China Taiwan story and and Taiwan Semi in particular, I would say that's the Achilles heel of the entire global economy right now. Like that's oh, the yeah. that is that is the one. That's because if you thought supply sh- chain shortages were bad uh, last year, you know any kind of geopolitical event in that part of the world, you you will see an economy literally like. Uh, off a cliff if something mm-hmm. goes wrong there. So, but I think that's Apple's probably biggest uh, point of risk. And you and you yeah. see it. You see all the effort to build their own chips. You see all the effort for Taiwan Semi to 
start building in places like Mexico and Wisconsin. Like every everybody sees this. Uh, it's not it's not exactly visionary for me to say this, but like I'd worry way more about that than uh, a lot of the other concerns about Apple. We just had uh, Congressman Rokana on the show last week, who was sure. fresh off a visit to Taiwan, and I get this is also fairly known, but it was interesting to hear from him. Where you know he was behind this scenario. How long does it take to get these chips in the U.S. as opposed to being manufactured in Taiwan? And the answer is a decade. So it's sort of a you know ten years of being sort of you know fingers crossed. Hopefully nothing happens. It's a long time. Right. You have to start. You have to start somewhere. Right. I guess um, you had to plant the tree at some point. But yeah, I th- look. I think a lot of interesting things can come from this economically if we. On a, in a cost-effective way, can start producing the stuff here, um, but we're nowhere near close to that. And all of these companies that make up our stock market—Apple, Nvidia—there's a huge amount of vulnerability to that one part of the world and all of the things that it supplies. And nothing we do in Congress or on the ground in the Western Hemisphere is going to change yeah. that right now. Okay, let's do Google. I wrote risking its core business by not being ahead of the chatbot wave. Sell. I don't. Did you read the Bloomberg story uh, yesterday? About they, they interviewed all the training. Google people. That, yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, I'm a shareholder in Alphabet, and that's terrifying. They really seem to not know what the hell they want to do. So, in response to that article coming out, uh, which I'm sure freaked them out. They came out and said that they're going to merge their two AI entities, one of them being Google Brain, which is homegrown, and the other being what is it called DeepMind, which they acquired. Yes. So yes. now they're going to smash those two things together and make a more concerted effort to have a competitive product out there in the market. Right now, they don't. I was playing with Bard, and it was giving me false information that I was very easily able to verify was false using Google search. So right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's extremely problematic that their uh, AI product is a piece of shit, but it is. And yeah. chat GPT is not so amazing. Like it's, you know, let, let's call it what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a prediction engine for language. You know, I mean, it's, it's amazing in that the, the usership of it has exploded overnight, like a hundred million users out of nowhere. That's the amazing part of it. Not the tech. The tech is going to be blowing our minds six months from now, a year from now, now that we're all playing with it. Now we're first going to be amazed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Google, like Google not even being able to compete with this rudimentary version of ChatGPT, which is a not-for-profit uh, foundation that has a, you know, a profit-seeking department within it. And then you have the, the third most valuable company in the world like trying to play catch up with that. It's really astonishing what's going on here. Yeah, it's fascinating. There's a line from that Bloomberg article that I was looking for and I found it where in February they're testing it and someone writes, Google employee writes, Bard is worse than useless. Please do yeah. not launch. That was the line where I looked and I was like, oh boy. But 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 one thing I'll say, Google's never played defense before. Right. Google has spent the entirety of its life on offense since coming public. So they they came public in like 2004. They were after the initial wave of dot coms came and went. So they had like all of those like uh, all of those examples of what to do and what not to do to follow. 
And they immediately took like 85% market share. And then they had mm-hmm. it the entire time without really any challenge whatsoever, even Bing. <laughs> uh, Yahoo committed suicide. Like they just, they, they never had to defend their turf. So it'll be interesting to watch them try to do it. Maybe they will. So yeah. like I, my personal opinion is that you're not going to see Bing be 10% of search any maybe ever because Google will get their act together before something like that could happen. And they'll figure out how to incorporate some of the Bard stuff uh, or some other AI stuff into what it is so that they keep their user base. But they're going to have to fight for it because they don't have it all for themselves anymore. Absolutely. And they have the capabilities, so they can definitely try to counterpunch. So that'll be the money. They have the expertise. They just, you know, they have to strategically think this through. And what's the irony is that a lot of the people working on AI for open AI could have been at Google. They kind of had an exodus from their AI uh, initiatives because um, the CEO was being too cautious and he Mm -hmm. was spending too much time listening to all these in-house ethicists and all these people trying to throttle the AI. And then Microsoft just comes along, drops a check on, on Altman and says, do what you want to do. <laughs> like we're, we're, we're on board. We'll say all the nice things in public about uh, ethics, but like, let's go. And, you know, maybe that's where Google has to get to. It's terrifying for the rest of us because we don't know what mm-hmm. the ramifications are for that, but that's kind of where it seems to be sitting right now. So let's, let's talk about Microsoft now that you brought it up. So for Microsoft, I have well-positioned for every trend, cloud, AI, enterprise technology, bye. Um, I mean, it seems that way. This is the stock yeah. that I think fell the least out of the mm-hmm. group from its, from its highs during the October lows for tech last year and very quickly regained a lot of the market share that it lost. Fundamentally, it doesn't appear as though the business has lost a beat. And uh, definitely still has the confidence of Wall Street. So this is like one of those trades where while it's working, just just enjoy it. You know, no, nobody seems to be mm-hmm. nobody seems to be looking at anything Microsoft is doing critically in terms of like this ain't going to work or they're behind the eight ball. I think right now, uh, Microsoft is probably uh, the, the name out of this group that people are least concerned about. And it's fascinating because the company for a decade had a lost decade, terrible leadership, was stuck in the mud. And then I think the energy to move them from the desktop operating system of Windows to cloud just showed them that sometimes it's okay to rip everything up and start again, which is what all these companies need to be able to do. And that's probably, I mean, the same person that did that, Satya, was the head of server and tools, which had all that money coming in. Well, it's, it's two. There's two things that people. There's two things that people should know about Microsoft's lost decade. One of those things is that earnings actually grew. Right. So, so Steve Ballmer, all-time worst timing. Bill Gates gives him the reins. I think in the year 2000. <laughs> so he he inherits the the reins at the all-time high price for tech stocks. So almost no matter what he did. He was not going to be able to say the stock price grew by X percent over my tenure. So that's a little bit, it's a little bit unfair to him and his legacy. Although he did some, you know, clumsy, stupid stuff that have become memes. And we all, we all know he laughed at the iPhone. He launched the Zune. We know, but like earnings grew while he was there Hmm. and they grew, I think, faster 
than they did for the overall stock market. So it's not like he was eating crayons, um, but he had that unfortunate timing of where the stock was priced when he took over. Um, but then I think the, the the best thing you could say is that he knew himself when it was time to walk away and let somebody else have a turn because he's still the second or third largest shareholder and always will be. And so he correctly recognized, I'm. it turns out I'm not the guy. <laughs> so I think he, I think when we look back, we'll give him more credit and he'll be less of a punchline than maybe he was at, at one point. Um, but Microsoft, uh, Microsoft now, or, or the second thing I wanted to say, Wall Street didn't really understand the degree to which there were employees at every government and every Fortune 500 company and every large multinational company all over the world. Wall Street didn't fully understand the fact that these companies had employees who were Microsoft certified and were never going to change things over to Linux or Apple or it. So when cloud came along as a business, it was, I mean, AWS, yeah, but it was really Microsoft's business to lose because you're going to these companies and you're asking them to move things from, from internally to, to the cloud. Right. If you have at least a Microsoft cloud environment, all of those Microsoft certified IT professionals working at these companies could get on board with that. They didn't look at it that they didn't look at that like, oh shit, this is gonna replace the need for me. They looked at it like job security. And that's one of the most unsung aspects of the cloud migration and how and and why Microsoft was able to preserve its its uh lead and then grow it. Um and and again, that's something that's also not gonna change anytime soon. There is an entrenchment uh in 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 cloud that I think continues to help companies like Microsoft. Which could be very interesting as they go and try to sell AI into companies as well. So, yeah, I think, I think it's, I think it's an enduring advantage that mm-hmm. they will enjoy for a long time to come. And it's behavioral because again, yes. who's making these decisions? It's people at companies that have a vested interest in staying with Microsoft. Okay. So let's, let's talk about Amazon. Um, Amazon's very interesting position. And I, I have, um, this is what I wrote cloud CEO in a moment where the retail business needs the most attention, rough in the short term, good position in the long term. Well, mm. I don't know if this guy is going to be the CEO a year from now. Really? Okay, so t- tell me why. I could see I could see Bezos coming back. Really? Why? They what all do. Because he's too young to be done. Uh-huh. Too much of his fortune is at risk based on the decisions of someone else. They all come back. Mm-hmm. Howard Schultz came back three times already. Right. Like the, it, it's, it's to me. So this, I'm a shareholder at Amazon. Here's why I like this situation. Either Jassy like gets the confidence of the street and the stock heads back to 150, or Bezos comes in and it happens anyway. Right. But like, look, just watch what, watch what's going on with Bob Iger at Disney and then ask yourself, do I think Jeff Bezos is paying attention to that? He definitely, definitely is. Yeah. Okay. So they all come back. I think he's coming back. Uh, or I'll be shocked to the upside because uh, Jassy figures it out. But I, th- I feel like either way, this this company will get back on its horse mm-hmm. and uh, will get its momentum back. It's just a matter of time. So um, NVIDIA is a very interesting one. For them, I just wrote, get on, the, get on board and ride the AI train. 
the only way that you can really like buy it right now is if you just don't care about the valuation because it's the most expensive large cap stock in America, Mm -hmm. I would say. Worth more than that. Yeah. And it's, you know, 60 times earnings. Mm -hmm. Do you know how much stuff I'm long the stock? Okay. The thing is, I own it for so long and from such a low cost basis, mm. and I've trimmed it on the way up. So I just don't feel as at risk as I probably right. am. <laughs> yeah. But like a new position right now, because you're chasing AI, I would advise against that. There mm. will be a disruption in the stock market at some point this year. There is every year where they're going to hit these high beta names hard. And maybe that's the time to not be fearful and, and take advantage of a big drawdown in NVIDIA. I could be wrong. Yet an analyst this week uh, double downgrade, double upgrade the stock, wow. go from a sell to a buy, mm. and his mea culpa guy from HSBC is basically saying, "Look, I uh, I was focused too much on the enterprise and data center slowdown, and I missed the the chase that would be on for AI chips, and that's really the most important part of the story." It turns out, so mm. his target is like three fifty five. So mm. yeah. He went from a, a target of 175, which is substantially below where the stock is trading, to 355, which is substantially above. Mm. So I think there's a lot of that. Um, you've got retail uh, people obsessed with quote playing AI, and NVIDIA is the most obvious way to do it. Their chips have 80 something percent of the AI chip market, and you know to quote the analyst again, they're getting ten thousand dollars for the A100 chip. Right. They're getting $20,000 for the H100 chip, which is the one that's so powerful, the government won't let them sell it to China. Yeah. So that, that pricing power and the volume of these chips that are going to be needed for this AI revolution, that combination is insane. Mm. So who else makes AI uh, GPUs that are suitable for AI? There are other players, but NVIDIA is so far ahead both in its ability to produce the chips and the chips capability that like, it's just hard to see a scenario where NVIDIA doesn't keep winning mm-hmm. and they, and keep this market. So that's why it's trading. So people are like, Oh, it's so expensive. And I say, well, don't you think there's a reason? Like, do you think the market is that stupid that it's not aware how highly valued it uh, or how, how, how high of a multiple it's paying? The market is aware. Mm-hmm. There's a reason it's not out of nowhere. Right. It's not right. So that so that that push and pull is difficult. There's some investors on Wall Street who just that's part of their process. They don't care how great the story is. They don't get off on the the tech, the technical aspects of what a company's making. They just mm-hmm. will not invest mm-hmm. at this valuation, no matter what. And we watched we watched this happen with Tesla. You had you know traditional investors who had to like invent new metrics <laughs> in order to justify buying the stock. And then the stock at its maximum valuation gets added to the S and P 500, and you know they didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. You know the 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 index committee at Standard and Poor's was like uh, S and P Dow Jones in- indexes. You know they were like, oh, this is the, <laughs> this is a trillion dollar stock, and it's not in the index, and now they're profitable. Mm-hmm. I guess we have to add it. Right. So, they, in in every era, there is one stock that just defies the investor community. And I think NVIDIA has become that stock hmm. for this era. It was probably Tesla last time. Right now, it's this is this is the stock that it's it's almost like um it's almost like a religious uh right. dispute. 
at this point. Interesting. Okay. Two more before we have to jump. Um, we could do it quickly. Tesla, I say, uh, would double if Elon sold Twitter. Uh, I don't know because mm. that last quarter that they reported this week, they're mm. starting to look more and more like a traditional automaker. Mm-hmm. And if that's how they're going to start to get valued, um, there's a lot more room to go lower. I do agree that Twitter thing is not doing him any favors. And I don't know how much longer he's going to continue um, being as hands-on as he is and as vocal as he is. But, you know, listen, it's, this is what happens when you buy into a, a, a cult of personality. Right. You, you got to take the good with the bad. <laughs> this, is, this is the bad. Yeah. Last one. Bitcoin will never reach $64,000 a coin again. No way. You said that? That's you the, that's the that provocative hill? thesis I'm throwing at you. So <laughs> you think it's going to go right. above? I, 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 <laughs> think there's nothing, I think there's nothing intellectual to be said about the future price of Bitcoin. My personal opinion. It's okay. all it's all feelings and ideas and concepts. There's that. There's, uh, I had a guy on my podcast, Rick Edelman, say he thinks it's 150,000 by 2025, mm-hmm. and I said why, and he said the happening. It's just math, and I said, oh, all right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess I understand. I still don't, but yeah. I guess I get it. I love hearing you talk about Bitcoin, Josh. It's always funny. <laughs> Hear your perspective. I don't. I. I. I don't have a very. Str- if you right. told me, yeah. if you told me next month it'll be twenty thousand or forty thousand. Mm-hmm. I would. I could believe either. I could believe either case. Right, which is why I think just your agnosticism about it, and you know, I think that you're approaching it in the right way, which is that there's no fundamentals here. So who knows? It's. I got it. I got it right. I got a wallet full of lottery tickets. <laughs> Josh Brown, thanks so much for joining. Oh, so great to be with you, Alex. Thank you. And that'll do it for us here on Big Technology Podcast. Thank you so much, Josh Brown, for coming on. It's always great to speak with you. And I love listening to your Compound and Friends show. So I hope we can do it again soon. Thanks to Nate Gowatney for handling the audio. Thanks to LinkedIn for having me as part of your podcast network. Thanks to all of you, the listeners, for coming back week after week. If you're liking the show, as I mentioned, please give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Those go a long way. Really appreciate some people who've done it recently. I want to shout out in particular. We've got some good ones recently. Uh, Thank you, WS77. Weekly deep dive into all things tech. An absolute must if you need to listen to deep, insightful discussions on tech, especially in the era we're in. Can't pass by a week without it. Thank you, WS77. Thank you to CalCT. Big Tech Made Conversational, the podcast features the most high-profile guests from the tech community. They and Alex with its few love that, a host that lets experts talk and take the lead. Simple yet strategic questions break down what few truly understand. I read the likely tech news outlets as my primer, then come here to learn more about specific topics that I want to better understand, like the latest AI-fueled news feeds. Listen to completely different points of views among engineers who create products. This podcast is pretty special. Thank you very much to the two of you, and thanks to everybody who's rated among uh, you know, the, the many who have, and I can't thank you enough. You really do help the podcast, and we've been on a roll lately getting great guests, and you are a large part of the reason why, so thank you for that. All right, that'll do it for us here on this week's edition of Big Technology Podcast. We will be back on Friday. Uh, that is going to be live on LinkedIn, and then we'll have it on the feed shortly afterwards, breaking down the week new, week's news And uh, we'll see who comes on next week. We're going to have a special guest next week. So stay tuned for that. 
on the flagship interview. All right, that will do it for us here. We will see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. 